uh, probably around verse number 13, 14, somewhere around that area. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed we shall be found, not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that uh, we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up in life. So he's speaking here of uh, our glorified bodies that are yet to come uh, and being in a, in a, a non-corrupted uh, house, if you will. Verse number 5. Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Therefore we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore, we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, <coughs> but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that ye may have somewhat to answer them, which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Father, once again we come to you, we ask that you would... Bless the time that we spend around your word. May you give your understanding and illumination to this passage. And may it profit us and cause us to be drawn closer to you to become more of what we should be. Thank you for the time of fellowship and the wonderful food that we enjoyed. Uh, and Lord, the, the time of uh, edifying one another, just encouraging one another in the faith. We're thankful for a, a church family that loves and cares for one another. We pray that you'll bless all that we say and do. May it glorify you. And this afternoon, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I want to give us today four motivations to serve Christ. Four motivations uh, to serve Christ. Uh, I don't think any of us would dispute the idea that God has called us to serve Him. But I'll be real frank with you. There's sometimes that it's more joyful to serve the Lord than others, isn't it? Um. And there are times where we grow weary in, in the flesh. And Paul worded it this way. He said the flesh, uh, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And uh, that there is weariness in serving the Lord. Uh, there are trials that come our way. There's persecution sometimes that comes our way. And if we don't have the right biblical motivation, then oftentimes we will flounder and even fail in this aspect. For instance, let me let me share one uh, false or wrong motivation I think personally, and that is the fact that uh, we are pressured by our spiritual peers to serve the Lord. Um, we 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 want to appear, and it really comes back to pride. Uh, we want to appear before them, before our folks that we fellowship with, we enjoy spending time with. We want to appear to 
be at a particular level spiritually, and we think that by our service we can indicate our spirituality. Now, I'm going to say a statement here that I think it's very important we understand. You cannot be right with God and not serve Him. But you can serve Him and not be right with God. Okay, let me, let me try to clarify that. It's possible to serve the Lord and only be doing it because you're worried what everybody else is going to think about you if you're not doing it. But if service ought always to be the fruit of a heart that is drawn close to the Lord. And I'll find, you'll find this to be true, not only in Scripture, but in action and in practicality, that the closer our walk to the Lord is, the greater our desire to serve Him is. Uh, we may or may not get the opportunities and accomplish any more than we always have, but our desire to do so will certainly strengthen the closer we draw to Him and walk with Him daily. Uh, so there are four motivations that Paul speaks about, and I think they're very clearly seen in the passage we've read here, that ought to be some of the motivating factors uh, behind this. And I'm going to start with the last one first, because to be frank with you, this is the greatest one and certainly the one that is the most enjoyable and is the easiest one that, uh, I don't want to say the easiest, it's probably one of the hardest ones to have, but makes serving the Lord the easiest. All right? So I hope that makes sense. It's a very hard motivation to gain uh, if we're not careful, but it's, a very, it's very simple to serve the Lord when this motivation is there. And that's found in verse number 14 and 15. I want us to look at that very quickly. Probably the greatest, in my opinion, I would say just from the experience I've had in life through however long it's been, I would say the greatest motivating factor in serving the Lord, the greatest thing we can have that, that stirs us, to serve is our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Look what it says here in verse number 14. The Bible says, For the love of Christ constraineth us, and uh, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. So we see two aspects of love that are found in these two verses. The first one is, and it's always the first one, is Christ's love for us. Uh, the reason the Bible tells us that we love Him because He first loved us. Uh, the love of Christ, because of His love for us, our recognition of that, our understanding of His love for us, ought to motivate us. It ought to be one of the great motivating factors uh, for serving Him. But because of His love for us and all that that entails, there is obviously a return of that love from us to Him. And we find that in verse number 15, as it says, And that He died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto Him which died for them and rose again. So follow this. Christ loved us and gave Himself for us. That's the way a husband is to love his wife. The way that Christ loved the church. The Bible says that He gave Himself for it because of His love. What we find here in verse number 15 is that those of us who have been the recipients of that love ought not to walk in our own, in our, of our own desires or unto ourselves is the way it's worded here. But because of the love that we have in return, we in like ought to give ourselves to Christ. So follow with me. Christ loved us and gave Himself for us. Because we love Him for that, 
we ought to give ourselves for Him. And this is the great motivating factor of serving the Lord. It is the, it is the one that brings the greatest joy and the least amount of resentment or frustration in serving the Lord. Uh, there are times that I do not feel like doing things. Uh, I've had dogs growing up, um, and uh, I, I had one here a, a while back, and he was old, and I got attached to him. I had to have him put down, and, and it devastated me. I mean, just emotionally devastating. It's, you get attached to pets. And just decided I wasn't going to have another dog. And uh, I had a, I woke up one morning. There was a strange fellow sleeping on the couch in my living room, and had to kick him out of my house and get it. You know, almost got the police involved in it. And I thought I, that's dangerous, and I better get something here that if if he does that again, uh, or somebody does that again, I'll know that somebody's in my house. So we got another dog. Well, lo and behold, it didn't take very long before you know what happens. You get attached to him. And, uh, you, you know, you do some things out of obligation. You feed them, you water them, they come in, uh, it's time for supper or whatever, and they're whining, you know it's time to go put food in their bowl. And then other times they uh, have to go out and do their business outside, you have to do that, and that's obligation. But occasionally, this, this silly dog we got will pick up his frisbee and come walking over to me on the couch. And he'll, he'll put his paws up on my lap, and he'll, I'll be like, no, Sachi, I'm not doing this. And he'll drop for a minute and get that sad look in his eyes, and he'll pick up the frisbee, and he'll do it again. He'll do that four or five times. And before long, you know what happens. I get up, say, okay, even though I don't feel like it, even though I'm tired, and I go out and I have a great time with him. We enjoy We'll go out in the front yard and play and do some things. Not always something that I would always do just out of obligation, but because I loved him and I care about him, I do that. Same thing with my kids. Uh, there are times that my kids are more aggravation. That I used to have hair before I had kids. and But there are things that I do for them, not because I'm obligated to or because I have to. Uh, Jonathan has a little business now. He's been making some money. And I asked him the other day, I said, you going to buy a dinner for me? He said, no, I'm not going to buy dinner for you. Uh, he's, I said, he said, if I do, you'll have to owe me money. I said, well, then that turns around and we'll, we'll do turnabout's fair play if you want to go that route. <clears throat> I said, uh, think of all the meals I have bought you. And he said, but Dad, you have to do that. You're the dad. <laughs> You're supposed, That's just part of what a dad does. But the truth is, and, and, and there is, there's some scriptural grounds to that, actually, that we're to care for our families. But the truth is, there's a lot of things I do for my kids, and I derive great joy from it, even when it doesn't seem like it's going to be much fun for me. Or I'm tired and I don't feel like doing it. I'll get up and we'll still go do it. Because I love them. And it's a joy to my heart to do it. Because I love them. And can I say this? That when we serve the Lord out of obligation and out of obedience, that's well and good and we ought to do it no matter what. But oh, how sweet it is when we obey. Not because we have to. But because we love Him. It's the desire of our hearts to get up and to do these things, to serve the Lord, to live the way He calls us to live, and to do the work that He's called us to do. So the love of Christ, Paul said here, constraineth us. The love of Christ constraineth us. His love for us caused Him to give Himself for us. 
our love for Him giving Himself for us ought to in turn cause us to give us ourselves to Him. And that ought to be the great motivating factor. There's three other ones that we find in this passage. Let's look at back, back to verse number 7. Uh, I'm going to start in verse 6 so it get, kind of gives you the context of what we're talking about here. He's talking about uh, there's a desire, there's, and I think we can all relate to this, there's a desire to be in heaven already. All right? I, I go to bed some nights disappointed that the Lord didn't come today. Uh, now, that, mean, that doesn't mean I want to go out here and commit suicide to go to heaven. But I have a desire. I have a longing to get to heaven. And, and this old, tired, mortal body that's frail and has to endure temptation, has to endure the sufferings of this present world, uh, I'm looking forward to going to heaven. And there's a desire for that. And so he's talking about this idea uh, of, of desiring heaven because it's far greater. Uh, we're going to have a better house. We're going to have an uncorrupt body to live in. We're going to be without sorrow. We're going to be without pain. And he talks about this desire before this. And he says in verse number 7, For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing, notice this, rather to be absent from the what? So this is Paul's desire. He says we're willing rather to... We're, we're right now, we're absent from the Lord and we're present in this body. He says, but we are willing to rather be absent from the body and present with the Lord. Why? Because of heaven. We've read of heaven. We've read of what's there. We've read of what God's going to do. He's going to deliver us from the temptation of sin. Sin won't even have a place in heaven. He's going to deliver us from the sorrow and the pain and the burdens of this life. Um, All the aches and pains of this body, this mortal body. I, I'm, going, I'm not going to have to have uh, glasses anymore and, and bifocals, and I won't have to have the back pain and the, uh, the sickness and the COVID virus and all of these. We look forward to heaven, the presence of the Lord being there, uh, all of these things, the joys of heaven. And because of that, that ought to motivate us to serve Him. You say, why? Because we understand the joys of heaven. We ought to want everybody we know to be there. We ought to want even people that are our neighbors and acquaintances, maybe even strangers we've never even met before. Heaven ought to be so wonderful, we ought to be wanting to tell everybody about it. In fact, it really ought to be one of the most natural things a Christian talks about. If something great happened in your life, this side of heaven, from a worldly perspective, um, let's, say, let's say you didn't even play the lottery, because it's not right to do that, but they call you up and say you won it anyway, even though you didn't play it. Or somehow you come into a great amount of money. Let's say let's let's say it that way. All right. <clears throat> Are you going to say okay? Thank you for letting me know. Hang the phone up and then just go back to cleaning your house. Probably not. You're probably going to get on Facebook and Twitter. You're probably going to get on the phone. You're probably going to go running around the house. You're probably going to go over to your neighbor's house, and you're probably going to tell everybody you know. Boy, listen to this great great thing that's happened. Well, heaven is a pretty great thing. Not going to hell is a pretty great thing. It ought to be a motivation because of heaven. And the idea that, that God's going to be there, His presence is there. I've said this so, so often before when I was young. Uh, the teachers in Sunday school, and I know they meant well, they, they made heaven sound so wonderful because they said, it's got streets of gold. Boy, can you imagine? They'd spend ten minutes on amazing streets of gold. And then the, the walls of jasper, the, the gates of pearl, and, and, and our eyes are getting wide because we're thinking, boy, one of these days I'm going to be rich. 
No, they paved the roads with gold in heaven. I doubt we're going to be rich. But, but heaven is not going to be heaven because of the streets of gold and the gates of pearl and the walls of jasper. I'll be real frank with you. Heaven's not going to be heaven because your loved ones are there. Heaven is going to be heaven because it's where our Savior is. That will be a motivating factor. I believe we will know our loved ones, but the love that we will have for the Lord Jesus Christ and our awe of Him and our reverence for Him is going to so far overpower any kind of worldly relationships we've had that that's not going to be the focus of our minds when we get to heaven. I've heard people say, boy, when I get to heaven, I know my loved ones are going to be waiting right by the gate. No, they're not. They're at the feet of Jesus right now. I have no doubt of that. They're in awe of Him. They're worshiping Him. They're learning from Him. They're talking to Him. If I want to find my dad when I get to heaven, which I don't think that's going to be the first thought on my brain, I'll have to go to Jesus to find Him because that's where He's going to be. And by the way, that's where my desire is going to be. Heaven's a wonderful place. It ought to be a motivating factor. And Paul said it this way, willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Why? Because of the great glories of heaven. Because of heaven being what it is, it ought to motivate us to serve the Lord. I want you to notice, secondly, or thirdly, I guess, because of the rewards that Christ will give. Look with me in verse number 10. The Bible says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Now, there are two judgments that the Bible speaks of. The first one, and we've taught on this before, is what's known as the great white throne judgment spoken of in the book of Revelation. The great white throne judgment is for unsaved people only. The saved will be able to witness it, I believe, but they will not be judged at that judgment. Because that judgment is to judge men for their unredeemed and unpardoned sin and to uh, express the verdict of the consequences of that sin and to execute judgment on them. The second judgment is what's called, and we find it here, the judgment seat of Christ. And we will not be judged for our sin there. Our sin has already been judged on Calvary. It's already taken care of. The penalty for it has already been paid. But we will be judged for the works of our life now that we are saved. Hold your place here for a minute. Turn back just one book to the First Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter number 3, Paul deals with them again on this issue. <coughs> Excuse me. 1 Corinthians chapter number 3, and we'll start in verse number 11. For other foundation can no man lay than that which is, or that is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, He's the foundation of our salvation, all right? He's the reason we are saved is, is the thing we're trusting in. We're resting upon Him. If He fails, we're not saved. So it's speaking here of those that are making Him their foundation. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, 
every man's, what's the next word here? Work. doesn't say sin. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall what? Try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a what reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. And here's how we know that this is not a judgment for our sin. But he himself shall be what? Saved. Yet so as by fire. The phrase yet so as by fire is referring to the loss or the burned work that is done. So we will, we will either gain or suffer loss of rewards. <coughs> the rewards that we get in heaven ought to be a motivating factor for us. Uh, I was talking with, uh, I think it was Brother Harold or one of the other men, I, can't, I think it was Brother Harold a while back, uh, discussing the fact that the Bible mentions crowns that we'll receive. And he uses the word rewards numerous times. And I've always equated two as one and the same, but the truth is there very well could be a difference between the crowns and the rewards. Because we're going to be casting our crowns at His feet. And yet there are going to be some in heaven that have a higher status because of the life they've lived here, because of the rewards that they've gained. And that's interesting to think about. Uh, I'm not sure really where all that ties together or all the theological implications of that, but it seems to me that there are probably two different things here. So rewards ought to be a motivation. I'll be real frank with you. I don't know so much that gaining the reward is my motivating factor as much as the shame that would be involved in losing rewards. To know and to stand before the Savior that I love with all of my heart and just think of this. We're going to be in our glorified bodies and without sin nature anymore. Our love for Him is going to be exponentially greater then than it is now. And to realize that I failed Him, I think is going to be that much more devastating to us at the judgment seat of Christ. The shame is going to be far greater. It ought to be a motivating factor. I don't want to be an embarrassment, not only for myself, but for my Savior. I don't want to cause a reproach for His name. These are things that are motivating factors in serving Him. And then the last one is hell ought to be a motivating factor. Our understanding of the reality of hell. For people who claim to know that hell is a real place, that those who die in their sins without Christ are destined to spend not just a short period of time or even a lengthy period of time, but all of eternity in hell ought to be a motivating factor for us to serve the Lord. There's great work to be done. There are billions of people on this earth that need to hear the gospel message. A doctrinally sound gospel message. I was listening to 
a Christian television station about a year and a half, two years ago, I think it was. And if I'm, I'll just tell you, it was TBM and that group, which they've had some problems in recent years and a lot of scandal. They're not what they used to be, but they still have their hands in a lot of other Christian stations that you don't realize are owned by TBN. They came on their uh, big behind-the-scenes kind of program that they had, and they said, we now have indication that 98% of the world are saved because of this ministry. And I sat there and I thought, they are sadly mistaken. Sadly mistaken. Folks, hell is a real place. Being right doctrinally on the issue of salvation is not just vitally important. It is of utmost importance. Being motivated to serve the Lord and to take this message to those that have not heard is not just vitally important, but is so far beyond what words can even describe important. Because it means the eternity for a person's soul. Look with me, if you will, in verse number 11. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, let us, uh, we persuade men that we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. It's a motivating factor. What are these terrors of the Lord that Paul's referring to here? Well, there's the terror of the tribulation period. I know that the Bible teaches in Revelation that there will be people saved after the rapture. And a lot of Christians say, well, then what's the big deal? They, can't they just get saved after the rapture? Yes, they can. I don't know to what degree or what extent because there's also going to be strong delusion sent. And I don't know the ones whose hearts are going to be darkened or, or not and how much of that's going to take place. But there are going to be multitudes innumerable multitudes of people saved after the rapture. The Bible speaks of that in the first half of the tribulation period. So you say, well, why would we worry then? Why do we have to worry about it? Because if you read what takes place in the tribulation period, why would we want anybody, anybody, whether we know them or not, to endure the, the, the judgments that God's going to be sending on the world during those days? It ought to motivate us to serve Him. Not only should the tribulation, upcoming tribulation, be a motivating factor in the idea of the terror of the Lord that is motivating us, but also a realization and an understanding of the ultimate destiny for those who are unsaved. They die in their sins before the rapture happens. There is no more chance or hope for them. They are destined for eternity in hell. Luke chapter 16, the Bible tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus. The Bible says, And in hell he lifted up his eyes in torments and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. He cried, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to dip his finger in water. Touch it to my lips. And I made, uh, so that he could escape the torment. He, he referred to it as the torment of this flame. Folks, hell is real. I heard a preacher say this one time. He said, if God would allow us as Christians to see even just a few moments, a few seconds of hell with our physical eyes, that we would do as Jonah did when he came out of that whale. 
And he would make a three days journey in a day because of the urgency of reaching those people with the message of God. Four things that Paul tells them here ought to be motivating factors to serving the Lord. Love ought to constrain us. God's love for us, and as a result, our love for Him. That's the greatest one. That's where the greatest joy in serving is, where the greatest satisfaction in serving is. Because of our understanding of heaven, what we've gained, and we desire for others to be able to gain that as well. Because of the issue of war, rewards or the loss of rewards. And because of our understanding and realization of the ultimate destination of those who are unbelievers, who die in their sins, or who reject God for all of eternity. Folks, there's a lost world out there. Coming up on 8 billion, I think, now in the world, close to it, getting close to it. And the Bible tells us in the book of Matthew that there are going to be many in that day that say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name cast out devils? And he's going to say, Depart from me, I never knew you. That's, that's what he said about the religious-minded folks. And then you think about all the people who deny God on top of that. Which is why I believe that Jesus used the, the description and the allegory of uh, the narrow way and the broad way. He said, narrow is the way, or straight is the way, and narrow is the gate that leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. He said, broad is the way, narrow, or broad is the gate that leads to destruction, and many there be that enter thereat. It's not a matter of not knowing what to do. We know what to do, don't we? It's pretty clear. God gave us the gospel message. He entrusted it in our hands. It's pretty clear what we're to do to serve the Lord. It's not even a matter of trying to find a place to serve the Lord. Literally, you can walk out of this building and within a hundred yards find someone who's lost. It's amazing to me how we know these things. But they don't seem to motivate us. Paul said the love of Christ constrains me. He said the terror of the Lord is what drives us and motivates us to preach this message to those that need to hear. These things that Paul spoke about in this chapter ought to be motivations for serving the Lord. And if none of them, if none of them stir our hearts or motivate us, then at least do it because He's commanded us to do it and we want to be obedient. Folks, we've got a great task ahead of us. We could redouble our efforts. We could exponentially increase the efforts of our service for Him for the rest of our lives and still barely scratch the surface of what needs to be done. What is it that motivates you? What is it that causes you to say, Lord, I want to serve you today. I want to, I want to try to have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone. Bring them across my path and 
Help me to come across the people you want me to talk to. Help me to have the courage and the boldness to speak up and to tell them the wonderful message of the gospel. What is it that motivates us? Well, let's stand together. We'll have a word of prayer. I hope that will be a help to us. Father, we thank You once again for Your Word. And Lord, truly, uh, may You, if there's no desire to serve You, then Lord, may You stir our hearts afresh and anew. May You blow upon the embers that are quickly fading and growing cold in our hearts. 